0: Well, we just moved into a new place at the start of summer. And since then, we've had a, a pretty steady flow of people coming to our door. And it's gotten to the point where, instead of starting off the conversation with a, a, a hello or a how can I help you with anything, uh, it's gotten to the point where I just want to start the conversation with, so which solar company are you from? And I'm so grateful that we got our trash service set up uh, f- at the very beginning of it, because since then, we've been filling up our can just about every single week with all kinds of adverts. There's landscaping services and uh, home security systems and some landscaping services or some furniture stores have reached out to us, uh, let alone all the landscaping services. And, and throughout all this, we have had people coming to do work, uh, there's still work being done in the neighborhood. For the first month or so that we had the place, there was there's people coming inside to, to do all kinds of different work, and we'd get things like uh, I need access to your backyard, or I'm here to spend some time in your kitchen, or I'll be up on your roof, and, and in all of these different things, some of it is is related to my. My inability to remember things. Uh, Some of it as well is is just being concerned because you hear some of these horror stories of letting in someone claiming that they're supposed to be there. Uh, I always ask the question, well, who are you? Can can you verify that you're supposed to be doing this? Can can you prove to me that you are who you say that you are? If I'm going to give you access to my home, are you actually the person you're claiming to be? Who are you? to get this new place as well we we got rid of all of our money Uh, and despite that we we've still had people coming and saying you owe us money for this or for that and and because uh, we have very little of it and because we have already come across some scams we we keep getting this final notice from this this company that says very bad things are gonna happen to you unless if you pay this mortgage insurance premium that you owe Well, unfortunately for them, I very much so recognize that they're not a company that I've ever worked with, and yet that hasn't stopped them from sending three or four final notices. I really wish they would learn what the word final meant. But we have come across some of these scams. Money's a precious commodity to us, and so when we're told that we're owed money to these people, it's always the same question. Who are you? Do we actually owe you money? Are you actually representing what is true? Are you who you say you are? Who are you? And I think that question relates so well to our chapter that we're in today, Luke chapter four. We're working through the book of Luke together uh, to to help fulfill the purposes that Luke tells us he he wrote for, so that we can gain confidence in Jesus, so that we can grow in his likeness, so that we could be part of the share in the good news that is for all people. And uh, thus far, we talked about this uh, that Jesus has come. He is bringing good news, and that is for all people. And now, in chapter four, we finally see him arrive. No more is it him uh, being foretold. No, no more is it about his childhood or uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. But now he is here, starting his good news campaign. And he starts it off in Luke chapter four, starting in verse eighteen. I'm sorry. Uh, I think we have it there at 18, but I'm going to back it up to 16. So he came to Nazareth. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Now, this should follow along with us. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? You hear of this good news, and, and sometimes when, when that happens, uh, before that even, you, Jesus announces, this good news has now come. This good news that the people were desperate for, that people still to this day are so desperate for. Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news has come. And yet when we're told things like this, we, we have questions at times. Is this real or is it just something that sounds good? Let alone, how can this one actually bring this good news? And we see a question in the text, don't we? After all this, uh, this murmuring, this, this uh, people marveling at what he said, they, they ask this question, is this not Joseph's son? It, it sounds harmless enough, right? But there's something behind it. And we see that if you were to read it, which I hope you read it before coming in, you, you see that there's something behind this question. Uh, essentially it's the people who saw jesus grow up they know his parents they know what he was like as a child and now he's the one coming and saying this good news is at hand i'm bringing you this good news well how can this be we know you we know what you're like who are you to say that you can do this we get this this question that boils down to who are you to actually bring this good news Now, the benefit for us as people who have been reading through the book of Luke is we get all the chapters before this, which have been constantly telling us, who is this Jesus? What is he like? We have the announcement of Jesus, his early childhood. We're told that there is something special about this person. And then last week, we spent time on the ministry of John the Baptist, which culminates in Jesus himself being baptized, and a voice from heaven rings out and says, you are my beloved son, talking to Jesus. With you, I'm well pleased. And in the very next section, we get a quite literal answer to the question of who are you about this Jesus as we see his genealogy, which traces back his family heritage all the way to Adam, the very first person. And it says, Adam, son of God. It's really interesting. In, in consecutive passages, we have this, this son of God language used. You are my beloved son, Adam, son of God. When, when you see things repeated like this, it should make us take notice. But let's pick it up. So right after we hear those, those words, Adam, son of God, this is uh, the very next words that we hear in Luke chapter 4. verses. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. Okay, let's stop right there. Again, Son of God language. In three consecutive passages, we hear this this same language used in each one of them. When we see something repeated like this, it should make us take notice. Why is this the focus here? Let alone with the fact I said that there's three uses of Son of God, there's a sneaky fourth usage in there. We hear of Jesus called Son of God. We hear Adam called Son of God. Now this question, are you the Son of God? But there's a lot of details in this passage that, that point us to elsewhere in the Bible. It, and when we miss things like this, it's, it's, not a, it's not a problem. There's enough in the passage for us to realize Son of God seems important here. But there's a sneaky fourth usage of it. You see, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the one that he had this unique relationship with, was the nation of Israel. And they were enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them and said, I will provide a land for you, a land where I will be your God and you will be my people. He took care of them every step of the way, and Israel turned their backs on God. There's even this moment when they were in the wilderness, and they were wondering, where is our food going to come from? Which is a fine enough question. There's nothing wrong with asking that. But then they went further. They said it was better before God did all this. It was better back when we were slaves. I wish we were still back there. And after all of this rebellion, Israel turning towards other God, them not following God, they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. There's a couple details there that might stick out. 40 years of wandering, and now we have Jesus 40 days without food. 40 days in the wilderness. The very place that Israel was at. And the big, one of the big questions that they had, one of the big places where they doubted God was on the topic of food, and now Jesus has been without food for 40 days. There, there's so many parallels here between what Israel did in the wilderness for 40 years, questioning about food, not being faithful, and now Jesus is doing something very similar and yet being faithful. Okay, but how is this a sneaky fourth usage of the Son of God? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, but Exodus chapter 4, God is speaking to Moses, who is leading or will lead the people of Israel. And he said, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And now we have this language being used in quick succession, talking about the son of God, which great. Why does that matter? Well, because What it means to be a son of God, to to be called that, uh, to to be called a son of God for Adam or Israel meant that God had this unique, special relationship with them. And through them, uh, he was going to make himself known. All his goodness and fullness of power was revealed through Adam and through Israel. And through the work that God was doing through them, more people would be brought into this relationship with him. More people would be offered salvation. It was this special relationship that God was doing work to bring more and more people towards himself. And yet both Adam and Israel failed miserably. They turn towards other things we see first with, with, uh, or we see with Israel that they follow after other gods that they don 't do the work that God is doing with them, they doubt him, they turn towards other things, they think that they know better, and so they forsake their sonship with adam he 's tempted by Satan as well, the enemy of God, the enemy of god 's people, and when he is tempted, he gives in, he pursues this other way, he goes away from what God tells him to do, and he forsakes this sonship as well. But now we have this new person, Jesus. Will he be faithful where the others have not? Will he be the one that God will actually work through? Will he be one that has this special relationship with God through whom others can be brought into relationship with him, brought into salvation with him, or will he be like the other sons before and forsake his sonship? Well, let's pick it back up in verse 3. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they shall bear you up lest you strike your foot on against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. He left, vanquished. Where these other sons of God, Adam and Israel, through whom God was going to do this work, God was going to bring people towards himself, when they failed in the face of these temptations, Jesus instead is faithful. Jesus instead remains true. Jesus instead reveals that he truly is the son of God. And and this isn't some momentary victory. He wins here, but later is defeated. But Jesus is obedient throughout his life, obedient even to the cross. He doesn't take an easy way out. He doesn't follow some other course. He doesn't follow some other plan or path. He instead remains faithful to what God has for him to do. Because if at any moment Jesus says, you know what, I am hungry, and he does go against God's will, if at any moment he says, you know what, that, that death on the cross looks like a bad time, if at any moment he turns away from what God has for him, then yes, this good news is worthless. He forsakes his sonship. He, like Adam and Israel before him, looks like a way that God was, was going to bring people towards himself, and yet they turn their backs on him. And yet, Jesus remains faithful. He demonstrates himself to be the true son of God. He demonstrates that he is faithful in following this God. Who are you, Jesus? Well, he is the perfect son of God. I don't think this is all that we see revealed about who he is in this passage. I don't think this is the only learning that we have of who Jesus is. Because the fact that he's the perfect son of God, that, that, I don't think that that's quite enough here. He, he's not just some perfect entity. What, why would we need him to do that? Why would we need him to just be a perfect figure? How, how does that actually offer us good news? Instead, what we see in this passage is that Jesus becomes like us. Who are you, Jesus? Yes, the perfect son of God, but he is also like us in every way. Last year, we had a, a series that we were, went through the book of Hebrews together. And uh, there's a couple of passages throughout Hebrews that I think relates well to Jesus' temptation here. One of them being Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest, so talking about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Who are you, Jesus? He is the perfect son of God. Who are you, Jesus? Well, he is like us in every way. And this is incredibly significant. Jesus has come to bring good news. He announced in Luke chapter 4, I have come. This is fulfilled. Good news has been brought here. But it's not enough that he is some perfect entity. Instead, he becomes like us in every way. He becomes human to save humanity. He becomes a person to bring good news to all people. I think we see that in his temptation, that Jesus was faithful when he was tempted proves that he is the Son of God, the true Son of God. How Jesus was tempted proves that he is like us in every way. Because if you look at the temptations themselves, the first one is if you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread now, that may, that may sound like a prove-it moment. Like, oh, you think you're smarter than me? Well, that's 48,793 divided by 68.4. Oh, oh you think you're, you're, you're stronger than I am? Well, how much do you bench? You, you think you're the son of God? Well, why don't you prove it by turning this rock into to bread? I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I, I don't think this is a prove-it moment. Uh, for one reason, prove it to whom? To, to satan well as we read through god's word, satan has only ever confronted a person face to face to tempt them once before and it's the one that we just heard of adam son of god so satan knows the stakes he knows the significance of this person in front of him he knows uh that that what the stakes are here he doesn't need to be convinced that this is someone through whom god is doing some special work To prove it to whom? The stone? The sand that's around them? No, I don't think that's the case. And and if Jesus is just going to demonstrate, yes, I am the Son of God, look at how I can prove it here, well, how is that a temptation for him? Just to prove who he is. Let alone, he doesn't owe Satan anything. Instead, I, I think that we could phrase this temptation as, why continue to deny yourself? You're the son, of God, uh, the son of God. You have this special relationship with Him. Why do you continue to, to suffer? Why do you continue to, to not uh, g- fix your hunger? You have the means and the solution to not be hungry anymore. You're feeling this need and desire. Why not just take care of it right now? Why, why continue to deny yourself? But remember, he's led out to the wilderness by the Spirit. He's keeping in step with the purposes of of God, keeping in step with his plan, choosing to worship God in this way, to cut that short, to take an easy way out of it, to turn towards something else, even something within his own power to do. Well, that is to find fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God. Why deny yourself? And you and I, we, we feel the same pull. The same pull to find satisfaction and fulfill, fulfillment apart from God. We feel that as well. And we, and we try to justify Well, God wouldn't want me to be without this. Or, you know what? I earned this. This is mine. I, I deserve this. And after all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? This, this is mine. And yet, in these times that we turn towards other things than God to find satisfaction and fulfillment, well, it takes us away from him, apart from him. And so where you and I give in to these temptations, Jesus, faced with the same thing, is faithful instead. Then we see this second temptation to him where where Satan says, I will give you all of these kingdoms, all of their glory. It is absolutely yours. All this power and authority and it just comes at the low, low cost of worshiping the devil. And and we might wonder, well, how is this a temptation for Jesus? He's not going to give in to worship Satan. Of course, he's not going to do that. But remember what we've said about him. He's the perfect son of God perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient, obedient even towards the cross. And going through all that, Jesus says after he has uh, died and raised again that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so what is he being offered here? He's being offered that same authority, that same power, but without having to go to the cross, without having to face all that rejection, without having face all that suffering. You end up in the same place, and, and you don't have to go through all the drawbacks with it. Jesus becoming like us in every way would certainly feel that temptation because we feel that pull too, to get some benefit to us, some good result that we like without any of the drawbacks, without any of the pain or the suffering that m- might come with it, weight loss, without having to go through any dieting or, or exercise or relationships without those pesky disagreements or fights, or, or really them doing anything apart from what I want them to be doing. Income without having to do any of the work. And yet, as good as all of these things look, as, as, as beautiful as these fantasies may appear to us, they're all hollow, and we know that. See, without the, the life change necessary to lose it, well, the weight's just gonna come back And it's the differences between people that make the relationship so beautiful. And without the work to gain income, it often comes at the expense of others or at the expense of character. And for Jesus to take this this, uh, authority, this power, apart from going to the cross, well, it is a kingdom that does not have justice or mercy within it, as opposed to God's, which has those things. We feel this temptation to go towards these things, these fantasies of ours that look so good because they don't have any drawbacks. There's no problems or pain, and yet we find out that they're full of both. And in each of these situations, as we're turning towards things other than God, it involves putting our allegiance in something lesser than him, putting our worship towards something. We're, We're worshiping something. We're following something. We're we're putting our hopes and dreams and desires in something, be it ourselves or some lifestyle or, or someone else or some plan or path that's had for us. The temptation here is you can have all of this, just worship me, Satan says. And all these times when we put our allegiance in something lesser, well, it takes us away from him, takes us down a road that's lesser than he would have for us, takes us down a path that looks so good, looks so easy, looks so free, and yet we find out that it's not. And where you and I give in to these temptations, Jesus, going through the same thing, is faithful instead. we get to the third and final temptation he's faced with he's taken to this high place and told throw yourself down if you are the son of god and god will rescue you again we may hear this as a prove it moment but but again prove it to whom instead i i think it's this idea and and we can get there by looking at the verses that that satan quotes look at how god promises to protect his people And you're supposed to be the son of God, right? So wouldn't God protect you? Wouldn't, wouldn't he do that? He wouldn't let anything happen to you, right? And don't we feel the same pull too? That we have earned something from God. That because of who we are or what we're doing, that that doesn't mean that God is going to treat us in a certain way. That, God, I go to church. I do what you tell me to do. So why haven't you given me that thing that I want? That God is a vending machine. I put my quarter in. Now you give me what I'm owed. And yet Jesus says, we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. God is a loving, active God. He is working to this day, but he's never doing so apart from his will, his desires. No one has ever been in His. Uh, he has never been in anyone's debt. As if we have earned or feel like we've earned him to do something on our behalf. But where you and I give in to these temptations, Jesus instead, going through the same thing, is perfectly faithful. As we look at these three temptations, there's a few things that are shared. First is the idea that, that being tempted. The mere fact that we are tempted is not in it of itself something sinful, something in rebellion to God. That Jesus, who is perfectly faithful in all ways, experiences these temptations, and yet he is still perfectly faithful at the other side of it. Being tempted is not the issue. In fact, you look at the life of Jesus. He'll go on to do these very things that he's not doing in this passage. Turn the stone into bread. No, I won't, but I will feed thousands of people later on. Uh, all authority will be given to you, not in this way, but it will be given to me in a different way. Uh, of of uh, ask for God to, to save you in this way. No, I won't, but I wear, uh, will pray for God to change things if possible. He, he does all of these things. So these, these needs, these, this power, this authority, these wants, none of the, desi- the desire for these things are not necessarily bad. But the heart behind each of these temptations is also the same. It is the desire to find fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God. We saw that in the first one. Why deny yourself? We see it as well in the second one, to to find a kingdom that's different than what God would have set up. We find it in the third one as well, to get God to do these things that you want. And if not, well, maybe he's not truly God. I- in each of these, we see the same temptation to find desire and fulfillment in ways apart from God, to find uh, a path of living that's, uh, that's different than the one that he would have for us, to find fulfillment apart from him. And yet we see Jesus go through all of these same temptations that you and I face, and yet he is perfectly faithful in the end. We see he's, he's the perfect son of God. He fulfills that. Where, where Adam and Israel fell short, he alone is that perfect son. And yet he is not some otherly entity. He becomes like us in every way. Who are you, Jesus? The perfect son of God. Who are you, Jesus? Well, He is like us in every way. And, and because of that, we, we have a different passage in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Someone says that they need access to your house. Someone says that, they, that you owe them money. We ask the question, who are you? Are you really who you say you are? Are you really deserving of that? Are, are you really that person? Someone says, I know everything that you're going through. I know everything that you will go through, the hurts and pains that we find in this world, the disappointment that life brings with it, the the thoughts that that this might be a way to find fulfillment, and that all falls short. And and not only do I know what you're going through, but I have gone through the same things. And because of that, I can tell you it will be okay, that there is hope, that there is joy for this life now and hope for a better future. Well, how? How? Can you promise that? Who are you to say these things? The perfect son of God, faithful in every way. Well, how can you possibly know everything that I'm going through? Because he became like us in every way, and yet was without sin. And the temptation of Jesus throughout his entire life, but started right here, we see the perfect son of God become like us so that we can be made sons and daughters of God. Who are you, Jesus, the Son of God? Who are you, Jesus, like us in every way? It it seemed important for me to spend time on this before we go any further, before we can look at what is it it that Jesus taught, before we look at his miracles, before we look at what he did with his ministry, before we spend any time on the things that Jesus spent time on, uh, before we look at how he cared for people, how he healed people, how he loved people. Before we do any of that, it it felt important to see why could that matter? Why could he be the one to do that? Why is it that the good news that he promises, how can that possibly be so? And to answer that question, we needed to look at who are you, Jesus? This idea is, is summarized in what we read earlier, Hebrews 4 verse 15. It's so powerful in summarizing the idea of of what is Jesus' temptation all about that, that I want to read it for us again. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because Jesus comes as that perfect Son of God, because Jesus comes to be like us in every way, we, because we have Him who has been like us as we are yet without sin. Well, we get Hebrews four sixteen as well, the very next verse. It says, "Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help." in time of need. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son. That as we talk so much about this good news that he brings, that, that he announces in Luke chapter four that he has brought good news, we might have questions like the original audience did. Is this not Joseph's son? Who is this person to bring it? And yet he is faithful where others before him have, has failed, where we have turned towards other things. We have given in to temptation. And yet he's also been made like us, that apart from having someone who comes and experiences all that we go through, we could not have someone who could sympathize. Apart from having someone come and experience everything that we have, we could not have hope that this is lasting good news for us. Without without him being like us in every way, he could not make us to then be like you. We are so grateful that he's come, grateful for his faithfulness, grateful that you have loved and cared for us so much that you sent your son to be perfect, to be like us, to uh, to be our way of having salvation and relationship with you. And so it's to you and you alone that we pray. Amen.